This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today's episode is part business breakdown and part biology breakdown as we explore Finch Therapeutics and their novel work on the microbiome, which plays a crucial role in regulating our immune system. To help break down these topics, I'm joined by Mark Smith, co-founder and CEO of Finch Therapeutics. Mark is a leader in the microbiome field and the perfect person to cross the bridge between business and science. As Mark outlines, we've made a lot of progress in living longer, but we are yet to make significant steps to living better. In our discussion, we explore what the microbiome is, why it's so important, and the role that Finch plays in helping patients transform their lives. We then turn to the business side of developing therapeutic drugs and what Mark has learned there. Please enjoy this breakdown of Finch Therapeutics. Mark, we're going to talk about an especially interesting topic today, one that I've definitely read a bit about, but I'm somewhat of a rookie on, and so you can educate the audience alongside me. And the topic is the microbiome. It's one of the areas of health and well-being that is a very recent phenomenon in the public consciousness and certainly in medical research. It would be good for you to begin by giving us an overview of what this thing is, this word microbiome, what it represents. And then I'd like to get into your own origin story and why you've devoted this part of your career to this idea. First off, Patrick, thanks for having me here. Excited to share the story of the microbiome and the hidden majority of microbes that live inside all of us. There are about as many microbial cells as there are human cells inside all of us. And they're fundamental to everything that we do, from the way that we digest food and extract energy from it, synthesis of important vitamins, regulation of our immune system, even how we think and feel can be manipulated by these bacteria that live on and inside of us. It's almost like a new organ system that we're just now learning to understand. And the reason that it's taken us such a long time to really understand the importance of this community is that a lot of these bacteria are actually really hard to grow in the lab. So it's only when we started to use the methods of high throughput genomic sequencing that we first used to sequence the human genome, we started to shine that flashlight onto the microbiome of the last 10 years that we realized there's actually this enormous diversity of microbial organisms that lives inside all of us and is really important to our health. You can think about it like a rainforest that lives inside of each one of us and is responsible for keeping us healthy in a lot of ways. As we think about the evolution of this space, this first chapter, which is understanding what's there. And now we're at a really exciting point. We're able to actually go in and manipulate the microbiome so we can make changes, make edits, add subtractions, and do that in a targeted, rational way in order to try to improve health outcomes for patients. Give us an overview of where these things are. It's non-human cells living inside human bodies. You said it's almost equal in terms of allocation of cells, human versus not. That's pretty crazy. Where do these things mostly exist? Is there a useful taxonomy or categorization system that might help us understand for the rest of the conversation, the types of these things, what they're doing, why they're related to our health, why they're there in the first place? They're everywhere. 
In fact, inside of every one of your cells, there's this thing called a mitochondria. It's what helps us get energy from food. It's actually a bacteria that's just lived with us for such a long time that got embedded into all of our cells. In addition to those, though, the bulk of the microbes that we're talking about and thinking about here are those that are not part of our human cells. And the primary place that they reside is in our gut. And the reason for that is while microbes are pretty much ubiquitous throughout our bodies, our gut is actually specifically designed to grow bacteria. We've spent the last 10 years trying to get really good at growing bacteria. Despite tens of millions of dollars of investment, we think we're pretty good at solving this problem. We're orders of magnitude less efficient than you are right now at growing these bacteria inside of your gut. And that's because we've evolved this system specifically to ferment bacteria. We can go into a little bit more around why we've evolved that capability and what it does for us and why we think it's an important target for developing medicines. But just in terms of a framework to think about these going forward for the rest of the conversation, I usually think about these commensals that are bacteria that are either neutral to our health or helping us out. And then there are pathogens. If you study a medical textbook, you just hear about all the pathogens, all the bad bacteria, but they're actually the minority. And most of us, most of the time are dominated bacteria that are a really important part of who we are and our identities. What do bacteria do? Is there a convenient, simple way to think about what a bacteria is and through the lens of the pathogen, the thing that does something bad to us, but what is a bacteria literally? These are single-celled organisms They have their own separate chromosome, different from ours, and they're able to grow and reproduce. And there are many different species that live inside of you. Think about all the different trees and flowers and stuff you might see in a rainforest. Imagine each one of those is a different kind of microorganism that lives inside of us. One of the features that defines them is they're microorganisms. They're too small for us to see with the naked eye. And that's why it's taken us such a long time to really understand the importance of these organisms. In terms of what they do for us, This gets back to why we evolved our gastrointestinal tract the way we have, and all mammals have evolved this specialized organ to grow bacteria. And that gets to our ability to take advantage of different food sources around the world. Patrick, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Tell me a little bit about your meal. I don't eat until much later in the day. My answer is nothing. But if it was on the weekend with my kids, let's say eggs and toast and bacon. Awesome. That's easier than nothing. Nothing would be the hard answer. Let's think through toast as an example. It probably had milled flour, simple carbohydrates in there. You were able to degrade those without any bacteria. So if I pulled all the bacteria out of your body, you'd be fine. You'd still be able to get a bunch of energy from them. But there's also within that some carbohydrates that you don't have the enzymatic machinery to digest and turn into energy that you can take advantage of. Instead, what you do is you basically export all of the stuff that you couldn't degrade. So you get first crack at the nut of trying to take energy from your food. Everything that you can't digest goes to your microbiome. We basically outsourced a lot of the metabolic heavy lifting to our microbes to help break it down into resources that we can take advantage of. And what's really interesting about this is inside of you, there are 20, 25,000 genes that can do useful things for us, proteins, machines that do important activities for us. Inside your microbiome, there are about 20 million genes. What this means is It's relatively slow. It might take hundreds of thousands or millions of years for me or you to evolve an ability to degrade some new food source. Instead of doing that, instead of changing basically the hardware that we're all born with, you can almost download new software from the environment, pick up a new bacteria as a new module that can come in and help you take advantage of a new food source. This is the fundamental thing that we've co-evolved with bacteria. All mammals and many other forms of life have evolved to rapidly exploit new niches, new food sources around the world. And that's what's enabled us to be so successful. 
we don't have to slowly evolve the ability to do it ourselves. We can rely on bacteria to do that. And we're really smart about it, like landlords for bacteria, where they pay us rent in the form of turning our food into resources that we can use. We get 100% of the energy from things that we can degrade without bacteria. So there's a reason that your small bowel doesn't have many bacteria in it. And it's very intentionally kept bereft of high density of bacteria so that we can get 100% of the profit from all the simple stuff in your toast, for example, and probably your eggs and actually your bacon too. You don't need bacteria to degrade those things. Once you're done with it, you can't take any more energy from the food. You send it to your colon and there you have tens of trillions of bacteria that will just go nuts on it. We're really smart about the way we've structured it without going to all the biochemistry. What that means is we still get 90% of the profit from all the hard work that they do to degrade that food. So it's a very efficient setup for us. 100% of the profit from the stuff that we can work with and 90% of the profit from all the stuff that we need bacteria's help with. And that's been a recipe for success throughout the evolution of life on earth. That ability to lean on bacteria to take advantage of new food sources has enabled mammals and other organisms to basically take over the world and rapidly change to take advantage of new opportunities. What would happen if inside of a human, the entire stock of bacteria was nuked and gone? What would happen to that person? Your immune system would freak out. We actually have examples where we've done this. Notobiotic or germ-free animals. We grow them up in incubators, surgically remove them from their mums, prevent any microbes from getting into them when we feed them throughout their lives. They live shorter lives, they're profoundly unhealthy, and they have dysfunctional immune systems. If we're the landlord renting out space to bacteria, we want to really firmly control where they are because if they suddenly got into our bloodstream, they make us really sick and we could die from that. Like a nuclear reactor, you want to carefully contain it and prevent it. It can be awesome when it's going in the right spot, but it'd be really harmful if that leaked out and got into places where it's not supposed to be. We have this immune system that takes a very significant percentage of our total energy balance. And it's not dysfunctional that we have this chronic lifelong infection. It's actually one of the main purposes of it is to shape and control that system. It's almost like a dead man switch, like back in the Cold War. If you don't get a signal, we're alive every two minutes, send out nukes or something like that. How your immune system is regulated, you constantly need to get a signal from your microbiome that they're paying the rent. And there are these metabolites that they use, energy currency that they pay us in. And if you don't get that, your body starts to mount this immune response. And one of the things that's really interesting is while antibiotics don't nuke your entire microbiome and eliminate all the bacteria, they diminish it pretty significantly. We've been on this massive uncontrolled experiment over the last 70 years since we started developing antibiotics. And what happens when you just give a bunch of people antibiotics and really decimate this microbiome? What does that do to their health? And right now we use about 42 billion doses of antibiotics every year around the world. And what we've learned is they have a really big impact on our microbiome. Unsurprisingly, that's what they're designed to do. We found that there are a lot of diseases that basically didn't exist hundred years ago that are now some of the big scourges of humanity, chronic autoimmune and inflammatory diseases that seem to be linked both in time and place to changes in our relationship with our microbiome. We believe that by restoring the functionality of this interface between these organisms that we've co-evolved with since before we were human and our immune system, by restoring that relationship, you get at the underlying cause of a lot of these autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Right now, the way we treat those diseases some of the best-selling drugs in the world try to shut down the immune response. And that has a lot of negative consequences. It doesn't 
necessarily address the underlying cause of that inflammation, which is disrupted communication between our microbiome, this organ system inside of us, and our immune system. Say a bit more about that inflammatory autoimmune problem. It does seem to be that there's a lot more people dealing with issues related to those two concepts than we had in the past. I'd also like to understand the empirical linkage between the two, why we know that one is causing the other versus some other causal mechanism. But to start with, what are those processes in our body that seem to be making people's lives hell in a very modern only way? One of the things that your body does when it thinks that it's under attack, it sends a signal out like, hey guys, we're in trouble. I need help. Everybody come here. If you get too strong of a response, when there's no problem. Boy, who cried wolf with your immune system, you're recruiting these immune cells. They cause damage to your own cells and your own tissue. This is what happens in ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. It is also one of the features of allergies. What you're doing is effectively, you've got a little dust or pet hair. Those are totally harmless things, but your body miscategorizes them and says, oh my God, we've got a problem here. Let's mount a big response. It's a misregulation of this system that leads to those conditions. Let's take something like allergies that I've suffered from a lot. Some crazy number of people suffer from seasonal allergies, pollen, something like this. Walk me through the causal chain or the relational chain between a set of bacteria in a gut, in a colon, and having to blow my nose a lot. How could those two things be related and how might addressing one solve the other? Walk us through something like that to understand the relationship. There are these immune cells that are in systemic circulation. The primary place that they go to get trained and figure out what to do is in your gut. There's specialized tissue that exposes immune cells to bacteria in your gut. Your systemic immune tone, the posture of your immune system, is your immune system chilled out, relaxed, hey, everything's good? Or is it really alert and ready to go on the attack? That tone, one of the important places that sets that, almost like a thermostat that's regulating your immune system, is that interface between the microbes that live within us. And the reason that happens, the reason that makes sense is, we have this nuclear reactor inside of us that we need to be really, really careful and thoughtful about if it goes in the wrong direction and suddenly those bacteria start getting in places they shouldn't, we'll die. We need this deal with bacteria. We'll give you a nice warm place to live in exchange. You're going to help us take over the world. As part of that, you got to stay in your place. And if you go outside of that, we're going to bring down the herd with our immune system and mount a vigorous response. When that interface gets disrupted and all of a sudden bacteria aren't paying the rent because the bacteria that would be breaking down the fiber in your toast aren't there, or maybe you stop eating fiber and you're not feeding the microbes, even if they are there. When those things get disrupted, they stop paying the rent. Your immune system says, I got to be ready to attack. Something's broken in this system. Then those immune cells go into circulation all over our body and it influences how they behave everywhere. Are they on a hair trigger ready to mount a response to anything? Or are they in a tolerogenic state where they say, yeah, okay, this is just dust. It's not a big deal. This is just pollen. I shouldn't freak out when I see it. How do we know that this is true? The mechanism that you just described, what is in there to begin with? Taxonomy, categorization, just pure awareness. What is it doing? What are the mechanisms? What are the therapeutics? How could we use this to our benefit versus be used by it? Talk me through those first two steps. How did we first discover the stuff that was in there? And then how do we understand the mechanism? This sounds like a really hard experiment to figure out. Talk us through what's happened here that leads to the knowledge we have today. First step is historically, back in the olden days of the 90s, <laughs> we would grow these bacteria on little Petri dishes. And we'd say, aha, look, I've got this bacteria here. And I can tell because it's got this shape and it can grow on these specific chemicals and it can't grow on these ones. 
incredibly labor-intensive and inefficient process. Fast forward to today, we just sequence the DNA. And rather than having to come up with specialized conditions that can grow each one of these bacteria, I could take a stool sample from you, for example. I could extract all the DNA in that stool sample, throw it on a sequencing machine, and then I'll get out from that things that almost act like name tags for bacteria. So I can read those and say, here's a Patrick bacteria, here's a Mark bacteria. I can count how many times I see each of those bacteria. And I can say, everybody that I saw that had ulcerative colitis, they had a ton of these gamma bacteria around. None of the healthy patients have these bacteria. That's kind of interesting. We should follow up on that and figure out what's going on. And then you can go into an animal model, for example, and say, well, what happens when you deliver those bacteria that seem to be associated with ulcerative colitis? Does something bad happen? And you see that it does. What happens if I replace those bacteria with bacteria that I'm only seeing in healthy people? Run those substitution experiments to determine whether those bacteria are both necessary and sufficient to drive the response that you want to see. Jumped ahead a little bit there to the tools that we've used to interrogate these questions. First step is just inventorying this and applying both high throughput sequencing. When we get these data sets, in some cases, we're dealing with terabytes of sequence data. I said we've got little name tags. They don't come off in that way. We have to process and curate the data in order to make sense of it. Usually, we build statistical models to help us understand signatures that are consistently associated with some of the effects that we're seeing. Is it more commonly so far in our understanding the presence or absence of certain things that are related to outcomes or conditions that we don't like? In that example, the ulcerative colitis patient has stuff that a healthy patient doesn't, so it's the presence. Antibiotics, I would think of as wiping out stock of these things, and so it's the absence that could be at the root. Is one dominate the other? How should we think about that? It's both, and the two are related to each other. Because you're missing some of the bacteria that would normally outcompete bad bacteria. One of the things that they do is produce that currency with which they pay us and that modulates our immune response. They produce a lot of other metabolites that are important. When you lose those bacteria, that has a direct bad effect on you. The other piece is they are taking up space that bad bacteria can't invade. A mix of both of those. What's interesting about it is there's not necessarily an objective, oh, this is the ideal state for all humans in all circumstances. Each one of us does have a unique ecosystem that's based on our diet, our immune history, various exposures to drugs and other environmental factors. All of those things come together, just like no forest is exactly the same. We might say this is a deciduous rainforest, and there's some general features that are similar across those, and healthy people might look generally like a deciduous rainforest. There's a pretty big difference between a rainforest and a desert. Each individual rainforest has its own characteristics and its own property based on the soil and all these other features. It's very much the same for each of us. In some ways, what we're dealing with at this stage in the development of this field is the gross changes between a desert and a rainforest. We're saying there's something clearly wrong here and we know how to correct it. And I think as the field continues to mature, we'll be able to make smaller tweaks and adjustments. But right now, we're dealing with the fact that we've been essentially nuking indiscriminately a really important part of our biology. There's some really low-hanging fruit opportunities to make some really significant improvements to human health as a result of that. I'd love to compare it to other diagnostic chains in healthcare. Maybe blood work is the appropriate one where it seems like blood works at this point now where you go give blood and you can learn a tremendous amount about what's going on in your body, things that might be wrong, worth chasing down, maybe even specific therapeutic or behavioral solutions to mitigate those problems. If we're in the X inning in the blood work diagnostic chain, where are we in the stool microbiome diagnostic chain? Is it really crude today? 
could somebody just go get one of these samples and get a diagnosis? What's the state of the technology? Yes, you could use these as a diagnostic tool. There are probably better tools today to answer any of those questions. For example, if you wanted to know whether you have a C. difficile infection, which is a common hostile acquired infection we'll probably talk about a little bit later on, I could tell that by sequencing your microbiome. Or there are much simpler diagnostic tests available right now that can answer the same question more accurately and faster. I would say there are a number of conditions for which this is likely a suitable diagnostic. It's not yet at a stage where it's the best diagnostic. And that's not what we see as the primary near-term application for this. What's unique about this is if I go and do your blood work and I find out your liver enzymes are totally messed up, it's a big deal to go in and replace your liver. That would be a big problem for you and you'd find a donor and it'd be this whole thing. Or if I find out you've got this genetic mutation that predisposes you to getting cancer or something like that, and eventually we're developing tools to engineer our genes, but it's very difficult to change those outcomes. What's neat about the microbiome is we can change it and it changes every day based on what you eat for breakfast or what you don't eat in your case, your microbiome is changing. What we can do is develop rational tools to do that in a way that makes sense in a way that's structured and based on rules and our understanding of how these systems should function. The primary application, what's exciting about this is it's really easy to change the system. And it's a system that's amenable to engineering. Our physiology is set up specifically to enable us to flex this as we need to, to take advantage of new food sources and stuff like that. I'll use the shotgun versus rifle analogy as we describe targeted therapies as we go deeper here. Is there a shotgun solution to this Maybe this is the probiotic market, which I'm interested in. seems like it's a huge business selling probiotic supplements. I'd be fascinated to know, do those do a damn thing? Is there actually good empirics behind those things? If I just said, I don't want to go through the rifle, deep diagnostic approach. I just want a healthier gut. What should I do? What's the state today of the shotgun approach to a better gut? That's one of the things that we've spent the last 10 years working on is developing that shotgun approach. The tools that are available today, like changing food or supplements, don't really have the desired outcome of resetting your microbiome. The approach that we're developing, we'd have an intact functional ecosystem harvested from a healthy donor that can then be encapsulated and delivered in a targeted capsule that releases at the appropriate location in your gut so that these organisms can reseed your gut. That's in development and I'm incredibly excited about as, as a first step towards developing microbial medicines as a new class of therapy. The way it works is a complete reboot of your microbiome. So you take this desert ecosystem that you're dealing with, you come in with a big chunk of soil and seeds from a rainforest, bring it in and then enable it to grow. We see that as the simplest possible intervention where you don't necessarily need to know all the ins and outs of how this works. You can just empirically see that it works. And it's a logical approach down a long-term journey of reductionism. We started off and we still haven't actually moved beyond blood transfusions. We've been working on synthetic blood for decades and decades, and it's been tough to beat the simple natural solution to that. And I think it's likely going to be similar in microbial therapies where the sort of this first generation of products that are harvested from healthy donors. And over time, as we understand the specific compositions that are driving benefits for patients, we can isolate those and develop those as the rifle shot approach that you discussed. Today, if I think about eating kimchi or fermented food, kombucha or taking probiotics, is any of that real? What is the science behind all that stuff? Because it seems to be a very popular solution. There's two regulatory paradigms. There's the probiotic regulatory paradigm, which is bacteria that have historically been part of foods. And FDA basically doesn't want to get too far down into our business around what we eat. 
they'll just make sure it's generally safe. Then there's, you want to develop this as a drug that has been shown to have a specific benefit in a, in a target population. That's when you get into the, the kinds of products that we're developing at Finch. In that probiotic space, the challenge is these are bacteria or other microbes that are basically set up to live on food. So they're good at degrading milk and turning it into yogurt. They've been grown for hundreds of years to do that. Going back to this desert versus rainforest analogy here, it's like taking a cactus and putting it in the rainforest and expecting it to grow. A lot of these bacteria in classic probiotics don't really grow when they get into your gut because there are all these other bacteria that are really good at growing in your gut. If you want to deliver bacteria to your gut that are going to grow there, they should be bacteria that are evolved to do that. That's what we've been focused on. There are some interesting impacts from these non-gut bacteria, these food bacteria. It turns out that they can modulate our immune systems in potentially interesting and important ways. The problem is they don't take up long-term residence and they're generally not very well controlled in how they impact our immune system. So the short answer, do probiotics and other supplements work? Maybe there's a ton of variation between those. Like there are a ton of different cactuses out there. Some of them have fruits on them that can be really tasty. And some of them are really nasty when you bite on them. So it's hard to make sweeping generalizations about that sort of class, but things that you can conclude, they're generally not good at actually living in you for long periods of time. There's a lot of heterogeneity between which ones have impacts and which ones don't. And there's not a lot of control over those agents. We've been developing therapies that do take up long-term residence that can survive in your gut that have well-known and consistent properties and that we can specifically study and say, this has an impact on this specific disease and we think can change people's outcomes and can do that in a reliable and consistent way. The concept of a fecal transplant, which is probably something that not a lot of people want to visualize and would have sounded very strange 20 years ago, is sort of at the center of what has actually been done so far. You can describe what exactly is happening here, why these things started to happen and what the empirical evidence has been that they're worthwhile in addressing so far, because this does seem to be the reality. This has actually happened. There's a high enough sample size that there's something to be learned here. So talk us through how fecal transplants got started and how that's related to what you're building. Microbiota transplantation, fecal transplantation, as you say, is this idea of taking a healthy donor, just like you might for blood transfusion, collecting their stool, suspending that and delivering it to a patient, usually via colonoscopy, allowing that new community to take root. There's one specific infection shown to be highly effective. It's called Clostridium difficile, infects about a half million people every year in the US, kills about 30,000 people a year. It's associated with antibiotic exposure. It's this weed that will take over your microbiome after you've been exposed to antibiotics. So normally, a lot of people carry C. diff and are totally fine. The other bacteria that live in your gut outcompete C. diff and keep you healthy. But when you take antibiotics, eliminate all the competition, C. diff can take over and make you really, really sick. It knows that in the long term, it's going to be outcompeted. So its strategy, rather than the bacteria that normally live inside of us, their strategy is make us happy and healthy because that's their ticket to success. For C. diff, its strategy is get into other people as quickly as possible. So it makes you have horrible diarrhea, which spreads its spores out into the environment. Also, that diarrhea makes it hard for other bacteria to come in. And that's what can actually kill you in a lot of cases. In that context, microbiota transplantation has been used as a really interesting treatment option for these patients. And it's actually how I got into this space originally. What you're doing is accelerating that path of allowing those bacteria to recolonize somebody and not leaving it to chance of whether they're going to be exposed to the right bacteria in their environment saying, let's just directly introduce an entire intact community. We know that that can outcompete C. diff. The first trial that was run in this space 
was actually stopped early for benefit because they were comparing it to antibiotics, which are a weird treatment for C. diff, given that they're actually part of what causes the disease in the first place. And what they did in this first study is they gave patients either a microbiota transplant or antibiotics. They actually gave everyone antibiotics and they gave them either nothing or a microbiota transplant on top of that. They found out that the microbiota transplant was so much more effective than just giving these patients antibiotics. They actually said, we have to stop this study early. It's unethical to not give everybody access to microbiota transplantation. When I came into this space, my wife's cousin had C. diff. At Thanksgiving, I was meeting him for the first time. He had been sick for a year and a half. He had failed seven rounds of antibiotic therapy and was just ruining his life. He was like, oh my gosh, we've got to do this. At the time, there were a half dozen people in the world that were doing this. I had this weird split screen between in the construct of this like small study, they said it's not ethical for everyone to not get this drug because it's so much more effective than the alternative. But then out in the real world, it's good luck, figure it out. He ended up doing a transplant with a friend of his in his home in New York, and it worked for him. He's better than I see him all the time now. But I was watching that, I was like, this is crazy. How is this how we're treating this deadly disease? CDC's number one antimicrobial threat. We have to depend on people finding their own donors and doing an at-home treatment. I came into this space with the idea that if you needed a blood transfusion, you wouldn't be like calling your friends to see who could donate, go to the hospital and get a unit of blood and saves your life and you're able to move on. No reason fundamentally why that can't be true for microbial therapies. First step was to try to make that centralize that process and say, unlike blood donations, we might be able to treat hundreds or thousands of patients from a single donor because we can get many, many samples and many treatments from each sample. And we can make that process orders of magnitude more efficient and cost-effective for the patient, for the physician, for the healthcare system. So we did that and had a lot of success in biome. We talk a little bit about that story. And then realized that we really need to take this much further and move beyond this highly effective but relatively uncontrolled process of a microbiota transplant, continue down this journey of reductions and figure out what are the specific communities that work? How do we deliver them to patients in a more efficient way? Can we isolate the individual bacteria that are driving those benefits by mining all this data that we're collecting from these interventions with microbiota transplant to figure out the secret sauce and then develop that as a new generation of therapies? If the Finch therapeutic story has got chapter headers from inception through now, what have been those major chapters? So if there's this blunt force instrument of fecal transplant, C. diff is one disease killing 30,000 people, what are the other addressable conditions that we're confident in some sort of therapy here working to mitigate or eliminate? I did a conversation on tumor treating fields and cancer, which is this other interesting new modality for treating a big class of problems. And it has to be tuned for brain versus lung versus whatever other cancer. So what's the equivalent here? What do you think the biggest, chunkiest problems to be solved are? And then we'll go into those chapter headers for Finch Therapeutics, the business. We see a very large opportunity here. Again, we think this is fundamental to human biology. We think that your immune system is regulated by your microbiome. Your immune system touches almost every disease, and that's the common thread. The nested opportunities that we see laid out ahead of us are C. diff, where we have a phase three program ongoing right now. There's a lot of evidence that this can be highly effective there. The next wave of opportunities that we see are in conditions where there's a GI component maybe multiple opportunities to show benefits. So ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, autism, actually, interestingly enough, there's a meaningful GI component. About a third of kids with autism have severe GI symptoms. And we've seen benefits both on the GI symptoms as well as behavioral endpoints. Those are a wave of indications that we're really excited to develop. 
gets broader than that. So you start thinking about your point around applications in oncology. There's some really interesting data that's come out over the last year. Some of the most interesting new therapies that have developed over the last few years are these things called checkpoint therapies that unleash your immune system to attack cancer. We're actually all developing cancers almost every day, and our immune system mostly clears them before they become problematic. And if you can help to empower your immune system to drive that assault, you can fight cancers. Checkpoint therapies are tens of billions of dollars a year in sales. It turns out that your life expectancy on checkpoint therapy is half as long if you have antibiotics within six months of starting checkpoint therapy. If you take a microbiome from a responder into a non-responder, you can drive a more than twofold increase over the expected response rate, complementing what we've seen as the setback that you get from disrupting your microbiome. That speaks to the potential breath here where seemingly unrelated indications all have this common thread. And it's an area that we've spent a lot of time focused on to summarize the broad chapters in developing this technology. For us, the first step was just show this work somewhere show that we can put all the pieces together to develop an effective therapy. We can manufacture it, we can do it in a consistent way, we can deliver it to the right location, all that stuff. The obvious first choice for us was going to C. diff. We had a lot of experience treating those patients and serving that community. C. diff is the first step. For us, this was a long journey to go from zero to one. And then to go from one to many has actually been a lot faster for us because we've been building plans for how we would attack all these other diseases. But once we've proven to the world that this works somewhere, we saw C. diff as creating a floor value in the company where we know it works there. We know we can serve patients and have a reliable revenue stream. And we can use that as a foundation to take some really big swings into these large, potentially transformational opportunities and get to our long-term view, which is this is going to be a really important new class of therapies over the next 10 years. My personal mission is to accelerate that reality as much as possible and bring that forward now so that patients don't have to wait. When I think about my wife's cousin having to do this on his own, that is not okay. That's not an acceptable answer to me. There are tons of other patients like that that are out there just waiting for these therapies to be developed. And every day that we delay that, we're doing a disservice that group. Talk me through the end game. Let's say you're successful. You're able to have a solution that's much more frictionless than the current, sounds like really arduous problem solving for C. diff or something similar. What does that look like? Are we taking a pill that's been engineered for us? Are we doing something different? What does the end game look like? And what's the timeline look like? The end game here is that we can sequence your microbiome, identify deficiencies, and then then deliver those. Say, following 10 groups of bacteria, we're going to deliver those to you. You're going to take these five pills. That's going to restore your health. And not only treat the specific disease you have today, but potentially prevent other diseases. We've made a lot of progress over the last hundred years in terms of living long, but we don't necessarily live well. People end up with these chronic diseases throughout their lives that make their lives really unpleasant with tools like antibiotics. Those are some of the things that drove the longevity and those are life-changing and amazing therapies. And I want to be able to use some of those agents that modulate our immune system, that change our microbiome and can save people's lives without impacting the quality of those lives. That's an important long-term objective. In terms of what the timeline is, this is happening now. There are already at Open Biome, sort of the first step in, in my journey, we treated over 60,000 patients, built a network of about 1,300 hospitals and clinics that we we're serving. That is very much a practical reality for patients today. The next step is we're running a phase three clinical trial right now at Finch to develop an approved therapy that can scale and serve many more patients. 
if things go well, this will be available in the next couple of years for patients. These aren't applications that are decades away. This is already reality for many patients today and has quickly become standard of care. Now we're scaling that up and bringing it into new indications where we also believe that we can have a differentiated impact. And the way that we do that at Finch is unique to this therapeutic area. Classically, drug development is all about risk management. And we fundamentally think about ourselves as risk managers. It costs about a billion dollars to develop a new drug. It's incredibly capital intensive exercise. And anything you can do to reduce risk early on in that process has a dramatic impact on the expected value of this kind of product. Normally, when you start development of a drug, you maybe have a 5 to 10% probability of success when you treat your first patient that it's going to actually get approved. You lose roughly a third of candidates just because of safety when you treat your first 10, 20 patients. Before we start any program, a firm underwriting criteria for us to support investment in a new program is we need to have clinical data that already shows that a composition works. And it's this incredible privilege to basically start with the answer before you underwrite new investments. We start off with all this microbiota transplant data. At Finch, we've built the company around this concept of human-first discovery, essentially reverse translation from what's happening in the clinic, where there are more than 300 ongoing clinical trials exploring all these new applications. When I talk to you about ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and oncology, that's not speculation like, hey, maybe this could work here and we've got some animal model that suggests it. Those are completed clinical studies that have read out data where clinical investors went in, modulated someone's microbiome, and saw that that radically changed their clinical outcome. We think that's an exceptional place to start from and to launch a drug development enterprise from. There's this long co-evolved history of engagement between microbes and humans. It's the absence of those microbes that's dangerous, not the presence of them. There's this expectation and empirical reality that these are generally well-tolerated when run in well-controlled clinical studies. There are all of these ongoing clinical studies with microbiota transplantation, which gives us that shotgun approach. And then we can mine all that data to figure out why did that work? What made that work? And then use that to develop the next-gen products that we're advancing at Finch. One of the things that's really interesting is we don't just say, this strain of bacteria matters. We can say this specific strain from this sample put 10 patients into remission. That's the strain I want to put in my drug. We can actually cryo-revive these things. We have a massive biorepository with more than 10,000 samples that have been in patients and we understand what the outcomes are. And we can go back and say, this strain is a strain that I want to put into my drug. Now I'm going to grow it up and move to that going forward. So it's that combination of all of these elements of the clinical data, some of the samples and the algorithms to make sense of it that have enabled us to use this strategy of reverse translation from what's already working in the clinic today. Do you think that there's a future where everyone takes these preventatively? We can infer from population level data that the populations become deficient in X, Y, or Z. And like a probiotic, as far as I know, that has no notable downsides, this asymmetric preventative health measure. Do you think that that's where this is going? that everybody is on one of these things periodically or constantly? Probably not constantly, but periodically, yes. What drives that response for me is 42 billion doses of antibiotics. Every patient that takes an antibiotic, life-saving drugs, we shouldn't stop using them. But once you take an antibiotic, you've nuked your microbiome. And if we don't take corrective action after that, we know that that has deleterious long-term consequences. When I think about the long-term addressable market, that's what I think about the billions of doses of antibiotics that are used every year and trying to develop therapies that can be used after patients have these kinds of disruptions using those preventatively. 
along the way, there's a lot of work that we're going to be doing to treat disease and to look for acute cases like C. difficile, ulcerative colitis, the work that we're doing in autism, even some of the work in oncology, where there's a really clear acute disruption. And by bringing in some of these key microbes, we can restore functionality and health. There's this interesting willingness to pay around health. If you told me that I could do something to stop my allergies, I'd pay you anything. It's an incredible, not just size of market, but willingness to adapt a solution if it really works. To me, it then seems like there's no market risk. The risk is that somehow it doesn't work. I'm curious how you think about that. You mentioned risk management and eliminating problems as early as you can. If we were to fast forward 10 years or whatever, and this has gone nowhere, what would be the reasons for that? What are the outstanding things that have you worried about either the efficacy of the idea in the first place or the ability to productize and deliver it? Manufacturing is one of the key risks here. The other one that I would point to is really trying to take this complex community that works in patients and reduce that down to something that's practical to grow in the lab. The two are related. If you get better at manufacturing, you don't need to take as much risk because you can put more things in your product. If manufacturing is really expensive as it is today, you have to take more risks because you can put fewer things into your product. That's an area that we've been investing pretty heavily in, both in developing the data sets and the algorithms and analytics to help us make better choices about what goes into our drugs. Also, the manufacturing infrastructure to make it easier to put more things in our drugs and to make that cost effective. I believe that over time, we're going to see some meaningful economies of scale that'll make this easier to manufacture. When people were first developing antibody therapies 30, 40 years ago, it was incredibly expensive to develop a few grams of them would require an enormous expenditure. And today, these are routine and we can very quickly spin up new manufacturing lines. And I think of microbial medicines as analogous in many ways to the technology development curve that we followed with antibody therapies. You're a PhD by background with emphasis on this specific field. So it strikes me as the right person to be doing this, but you're also running a business. And I'm curious what it's been like running Finch, which is a publicly traded business. You have this incredible, interesting payoff curve where you don't have revenue. Like so many biotech companies, there's all this R&D and upfront work that has to happen pre-product, let alone pre-revenue. What's it been like running a company like that for a long period of time? So many companies measure themselves on fundamental units of economic growth, whether that be sales or EBITDA or whatever. And this is different. Talk me through the agony and the ecstasy of running a company like this that's so different than most. Great question. For me, a lot of it has been about getting to incremental milestones like retire risk. So getting a clinical study. It was such a long, difficult journey to get to our first placebo-controlled randomized study. That's the gold standard in this space. If you can show in a placebo-controlled randomized study that your drug works, it's a really big deal. That's how we approve drugs. That's how we demonstrate that they're safe and effective. And we did that in CDF. Along the way, there are really important milestones showing that it worked in a smaller population, showing that we could manufacture the drug in a way that was consistent with what had historically been used for microbiota transplants. Going forward, it's being really thoughtful and insightful about those inflection points, those catalysts that help us and the rest of the world get conviction that we're on the right track and that we're doing this in the right way. An important part of that is trying to be really thoughtful about how we source and create capital. We've used a mixture of bringing in equity capital to support the long-term growth of the company and then partnering. We have a great collaboration with Takeda Pharmaceuticals, which is a big pharma company. They were really excited about the technology that we've been developing, came in and have been paying for all the development costs for one of our platform technologies 
and one of our products over the last 40 years. In exchange, they get commercial rights to that product. We'll get a royalty and milestones from it. Having a blend of equity and partner capital, Takeda is really smart. They've spent a lot of time working on this. They can add value. They certainly have. And it's also helpful validation for us. And it reduces our overall burn rate and allows us to ultimately get more quickly to a place where we can directly serve patients. But I will say, having previously built an organization, Open Biome, where every day we were shipping product to patients and it was changing people's lives, the instant gratification that came with that, they get a letter from a physician, you just saved this little kid's life or this grandma's life. That was really, really special. Being able to get back to a point where you can do that and do that on a much, much larger scale is one of the things that is always playing in the back of my head. How do we get to patients as quickly as possible? Maybe say a word in that spirit about pace of iteration in medical research. The experience with COVID has been obviously fascinating for us all that if we break down and oversimplify, we had the technology to engineer the solution in two days, and then it took a much longer period than that to roll it out which is understandable. The regulations that are in place are there for a reason. Nothing's perfect. But it seems as though some of the tailwinds we would want to ride is ever more efficient research processes. What has that felt like? Do you think that there's the potential that we could do tighter iteration in medical research? Talk me through what you think about the regulatory and iterative environment here and whether it might get faster. The key lever that we can pull on is the risk lever. Most drugs fail. If you knew every drug you were going to develop was going to become a multi-billion dollar drug, it'd be really easy to figure out where you invest your capital. It's going to be really difficult to eliminate the placebo-controlled studies, and they just take time to enroll. That's, in some ways, a fixed cost, and there are more efficient ways to do it. We and others are working to improve execution on some of those features. But part of that's just built into the approach of you're doing something that is changing somebody's health outcome, and it's really important that you can be confident about that, you can be confident that it's safe. And you want to take a staged approach to that kind of development. But what I think you can do and what Finch has done, there are other companies out there that are taking similar approaches. What can we do before we get into the clinic to set ourselves up for success so that we can be really confident that it's going to work? And we don't have to answer too many questions in patients. We can try to answer as many of those questions before we get into the clinic. Our approach to doing that is mining data from microbiota transplants, the tens of thousands of patients that have been treated there, and using that to develop insights around where this may work, specific populations that seem to be having a response, how it works, and how we might design trials to demonstrate that. There are other examples that are taking similar approaches to mining clinical data from oncology to figure out specific populations that seem to be responding and then optimizing the combination of drugs that they treat based on what's happening in the real world. Mining what's already happening from either clinical trials or real-world evidence. Foundation medicine is the notable example of a model that's worked really well there. Taking that into consideration is a really exciting development that helps you modify that risk lever, even if the time to approval is harder to change for very good ethical reasons. It's fascinating that the biggest efficiency gains might be pre-trial. Each trial is more likely to succeed because of work done before it is cool and interesting. I'm also always interested by someone like you that spent so much time deep in one of these emerging fields and how it affects you personally and how you and your family live. How would you characterize the things that you do most differently, lifestyle-wise or whatever, procedurally, than the average person does based on what you know? The biggest two decisions, which I have a different calculus than others on, anytime me or anyone in my family is considering a course of antibiotics, 
my nieces and nephews have had ear infections and stuff like that. I'll have a long interrogation of my sisters, my brother, like, tell me exactly why they need this. Tell me what exactly the antibiotic is and what our plan is there. There are cases where they've been necessary, but I try to be pretty involved in those decisions because of all the potential long-term side effects. And actually, early childhood exposure to antibiotics is particularly important because that's a period where your interaction with the immune system and the microbiome is evolving particularly quickly. The other piece is what I eat. I'm actually not just eating for myself. I'm eating for my microbes too. (laughs) I try to make sure that I feed them. If I eat pixie sticks and Snickers bars all day, the reason those foods taste good, or maybe especially they did when I was a little kid, is we get a dopamine hit, we get rewarded by eating things that are energy dense and that can be absorbed by our body without relying on microbes and things that are harder to digest, maybe not as energy rich, plant-based foods, foods that are rich in fiber. We don't tend to enjoy as much, but they're really, really important. Change is all about speed. And in this case, over the last hundred years, we've had some pretty dramatic changes to our relationship with our microbes that otherwise have been constant for millions of years. By changing our diet and reducing the amount of plant-based foods and fibers that we eat, that has a big impact on our microbes' ability to do all the things we need them to do. The only thing I track actually in my diet is my fiber intake. I actually keep very close tabs on that one parameter because that's a useful, simple proxy for how much we're feeding our microbiome. You can have all the right microbes, but if you don't give them at least a little bit of food, you're going to run into some trouble. Is that real foods or is it supplementation, some combination? I'm just personally curious. Mostly real foods, beans, brands, berries. Those are the things that tend to be really high in fiber. I'll have a fiber smoothie that has 150% of my daily fiber in one go to make sure that I've got my bases covered. Fascinating stuff. This has been such an interesting conversation. I'm curious if there are areas that you think are really important that we haven't covered. Maybe one that comes to mind is the complementary things being built around Finch. When there's a big problem, very rarely is there one player trying to address it. Probably the best outcome for consumers would be that there's lots of complementary solutions being tried. So what else is out there today that's distinct from Finch that you're interested in, in the area of microbiome therapeutics or diagnostics? There's a lot of really interesting technologies that are being developed. There are range from phage therapies. We talked about the microbiome. Well, our microbiome almost has its own microbiome. So these viruses that prey on the bacteria that live inside of us, it turns out they're really important for regulating those microbial communities and can actually be used as therapies themselves to knock out specific bacteria. And they can be a lot more targeted than antibiotics. We think about the classic engineering tools you want to be able to add you want to be able to subtract, and you want to be able to modulate. At Finch, we're really focused today on adding, finding populations that are missing certain bacteria and adding them back in. Phage gives you the ability to have a targeted subtraction, much more precise tool than antibiotics, which are rather crude. The other area that I think is really interesting is the modulate function. There are a number of companies that are trying to get smarter than just feed more fiber, but actually trying to identify what are the specific components of that that can favor the expansion and metabolic activities of bacteria that really matter for patients and for patient outcomes, and can actually develop those as medicines. There are a couple of companies that are working in that space that I also think are really promising. In the world of medicine, healthcare generally, outside of the microbiome, what most has your attention? I've been really excited, like many people, by what we've seen in the mRNA technology over the last year, in part just because there's probably never been a product in my entire life that I've been as excited about as the mRNA vaccines. The ability to rapidly prototype and develop still takes a while to do the clinical trials. 
But knowing what you want to target and being able to heavily de-risk that before you get into the clinic is a really interesting technological platform. That's something I've been following with great interest. Continue to be really interested in what's going on in the gene editing world. The scope of applications there is a little bit more limited just because you have to develop a new gene editing tool for every single genetic disease. But oh my God, the outcomes can just be fantastic. You can have patients that have otherwise very difficult to treat diseases that can have really dramatic outcomes. If someone is dying to learn more about this field that you've been operating in for so long, where would you point them? Are there best-in-class resources that are your favorites? Basically, anything that Ed Young writes. Sure. He's amazing. Yeah. He's a fantastic science journalist. He wrote a book called I Contain Multitudes. That's a place that I would suggest anyone start off in. Mark, this has been so much fun. I ask everybody the same traditional closing question. What is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you? I spent a lot of time thinking about this ahead of the conversation because like anybody starting a new organization, you're carried by so many people and there's so many wonderful, kind things. The thing that I kept thinking about was all the people that wake up every morning and think about how they can help make microbial medicines a reality for patients faster. The specific case that I'm thinking about is there's a woman, she was a scientist at Berkeley seven, eight years ago when we were just getting off the ground and we had this dream job posting. At that point in the company, we were looking for missionaries that were going to go out and really excited about what we're doing, happy to sign up to do anything. We said, you tell us what your dream job is. We'll see if we can find a spot. She wrote to me, said, I'm just so inspired by what you guys are doing. I think it's going to change the world. I want to be a part of it. I remember having a conversation with her. It was really hard. I was like, not only do we not have any money to pay you, I don't even have a near-term view into when we might. And she was like, yeah, no problem. I'll fly my family across the country. We'll move there. You won't pay me. I'll go write a grant. And I found like 10 places that we can go do it to figure out some way at some point in the future where I might be able to get paid. We'll figure it all out. And I just always think about that decision that she made to have so much conviction in the impact of the work that we were doing to move her family across the country. I've continued to work with her throughout my journey over these last seven or eight years. And she's been such an important partner for me in building and growing the business. I think about that as one interesting example. And every single person that works with me has their own story that's brought them here. Probably the most important resource that all of us have is how we spend our time. And knowing that there are all these people that just wake up every day focused on this mission is something very inspiring to me. And it helps me be grounded in the work that we do every day. A wonderful place to close. A good, unique answer. I'm sure it applies to so many great builders out there that it's all about the team. Thank you so much for your time. I'm obviously rooting for big wins for you, for Finch, for the entire microbial medicine area. This has been a pleasure and I've learned a ton. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. It's a lot of fun. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 